Yes. Yeah, we'll do the communion here. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. And uh, I was uh, really encouraged to hear again what Paul had to say. Uh, you know, as he's, he said it so true, if we don't get busy, then nothing will ever happen. It's just a fact of life. I, I really believe that so much that goes in the name of church is not, and I'm a, being critical, uh, I'm an observer, so much that goes in the name of church is not really church in the way that Jesus intended. Uh, he's building his church, and part of building is getting the church active, you know. And what I want to share with you today, and Jonathan and I are going to work together, I've given him a task that's a bit daunting. I've got more slides than he's got, and so we'll probably just do this by, okay, Johnny, go to the next one, or okay, Johnny, hold it there. Jonathan, sorry, I don't call you Johnny, I'm sorry, but I just did. <laughs> I want to talk to you about practically well, following Jesus, practically following Jesus. You know, if something is practical, then it's doable. And uh, this machine is not very doable. Okay, practically following Jesus, the freedom we desire comes from following Jesus. And we're going to show you that in Scripture. I believe the freedom the whole world desires comes from following Jesus. And so uh, just, just hold it there for now. Jesus said some things that uh, in, in the 8th chapter of John that we're going to look at a little bit later. He said that there is a way to come to freedom. There's a way to come to freedom, and we're going to look at that today. I want to give you two quotes by a man who's in heaven. He left these before he went. A most important question for every believer is, am I a disciple of Jesus Christ, or am I only a Christian according to current standards? And Jesus called us to be disciples. He said, follow me. So a disciple is a follower of Jesus. I'm just rehashing what we've heard. But it's so important that we understand that. Are we, are we truly a follower of Jesus, or are we just a Christian by current standards? And then he said this, Many problems in contemporary churches can be explained by the fact that many members have never decided to follow Jesus, that is, to be his disciple. Uh, a lot of trouble happens in churches because people are still doing what they want to do rather than having surrendered to truly follow Jesus. When we come to the place that we truly follow Jesus, then there's certain things we just don't do anymore. There's, there's behavior that begins to fall by the wayside. Uh, we've lost our uh, desire. So just hold it right there for a while, Jonathan. It is true that we begin to know Christ by confessing him as our Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead for us. No problem with that at all. That is very true. That's the beginning of it. But there is more. And two of the most purpose-filled scriptures when it comes to our work of making disciples, are these found in Thessalonica, Thessalonians in Thessalonica. Okay, Jonathan, you can go to these. First Thessalonians 2, verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope, or our joy, or our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Yes, 
What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. In other words, Paul is saying the thing that we have hope about, that we have joy about, and we have a crown of rejoicing is that when the Lord returns, you will be there in his presence. Now, I'm not going to get into the theology of that statement, but it is very clear that Paul is interested in people continuing in their walk with Jesus and not getting sidetracked. We don't want to be sidetracked when the Lord returns. We want to stay true to what he's called us to. And then in Second, excuse me, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. That is an amazingly strong statement. Paul says, if you're not standing strong in the Lord, then it diminishes my life because my life is to see you stand strong. And we need to identify with that, not because we're apostles, but because we are believers and God has called us to help people stand strong and really that's what discipleship is all about. It's bringing people to the place that they are standing fast in the Lord. Now these verses tie our fulfillment, our satisfaction, and our joy to fruitful labor. So much labor is given to things that we just desire for our own personal pleasure. It's not wrong to do things that are pleasurable. But to live for those is to have things out of order in our lives. I shared with you, I think the last time I shared, there are two C's, two C words that hinder us probably more than anything as far as advancing in the kingdom of God. Comfort and convenience. To live for comfort, to live for convenience sidetracks us. And those are a paradigm that is counter to the kingdom of God. It's okay to be comfortable. I like to be comfortable. It's okay for convenience. I like convenience. But to live for those things, to make those a priority, a, a criteria of whether or not I go on a, a, a trip to help people or whatever, uh, I'm going to miss it. Or however I live. So these verses tie our fulfillment and our joy. Uh, to fruitful labor. The measure of fruitful labor is not only people coming to Christ, but it's also people being discipled, coming to maturity and continuing in the faith, standing fast in the Lord. That's what both of those verses talked about. As a matter of fact, I encourage you to read uh, both letters to Thessalonica, especially the first one. I mean, if you want to get the heart of God for people, 1 Thessalonians, I think, probably as much as anything in the Bible really reveals that. So we want to see people stand fast in the Lord. Now, Jesus says two things about our cross. He says in Luke 9, 23, take it up. And in uh, Luke 14, 27, bear it or carry it. So we have to pick up the cross or we have to carry the cross. This is a sidebar, but... This shows God doesn't put crosses on us. Because if we have a cross, we have to pick it up. Uh, he doesn't just lay a weird, uh, terrible cross on us. 
we have to pick up that. But I want to say something else about it. Taking it up is the beginning of our following Jesus. And carrying it is continuing to follow him all the way to the finish. In other words, many people have taken it up, but they've laid it down. The cross is the place where I die. My cross. This is not his cross. He bore his cross. I bear my cross. The cross is the place where I die. It's the, cross, the cross is the place where my will crosses his will. And in the process, I submit my will to his will. And if I do that, then I'll carry on to where I finish. As it has been said and oft repeated, it is more important than, that we finish than it is that we ever started. It's more important that we finish than it is that we ever started. I'll tell you a true story. There was a very well-known evangelist coming to a particular area I was living in at the time. And, and there was a pastor's meeting. And the guy who was heading up that pastor's meeting in advance uh, of the evangelist coming... Uh, one of the things that we were going to be involved in was follow-up. And so this pastor said, you know, I understand if you can't make it to follow-up, uh, you know, what we're interested in is people coming to Jesus, at least if they'll just make a decision for Jesus, they're guaranteed for heaven. And, you know, what he was saying is discipleship doesn't have a place. And you also have to understand that a lot of people come to an emotional decision that we're going to see here in just a minute. And they begin, and yet because they never really got root in their lives, they just begin to fall away. And so I don't want to discuss the salvation, whether or not a person can lose it or whatever. I just want you to say that Jesus said we need to make disciples. And we, we're not just interested in getting people saved and just make a mark and say we got another one. We want to see people come to Christ. That's what Jesus is interested in. Now, you can hold it right there, Jonathan. Thank you. You're doing a great job. Let's look at some of the most important words Jesus ever said concerning discipleship. In John chapter 8, we'll look at that. Verses 30 and 32. As he spoke these words... Many believed in him. I didn't put other verses. They're great verses, but I, for the sake of time, he had just shared some words, and it, caught, and it brought many to faith. So this is what he told these people. And Jesus spoke to those Jews. Now, it's true for Gentiles, too. It just so happened those were Jews. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if, I, I made that blue and capitalized it, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you three, ver, free. Verse 32 goes with verse 31. If you continue in my word, you will truly be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We'll talk about that. Just hold that for a second. The word continue in the Greek means remain abide, do not depart. So Jesus is saying, if you do not depart from my word. These Jews had believed in him because of the words he had spoken to them. Now he says for them to not depart or continue in my word. 
When Jesus says continue or abide in the word, the word word here is not referring to the Bible because they didn't have Bibles. He's not putting upon them something they don't have. You know, the Bibles we have were not finished until near the end of the 4th century or beginning of the 4th century, something like that. And, and this, is, this is, even even the Old Testament, nobody had a personal Old Testament. They, they were scrolls and they were in the temple and there was no public access. So you have to, you have to read scripture in context. We, we must read scripture in context, which I don't want to get on that rabbit trail, but don't read things out of context. <laughs> so what he's saying to them is that you've got to continue in my word. So he can't be talking about the Bible. I think there's an application for that with us because we have it, but there's more to it than that. Let's, let's go on to the next slide. Verse 31 in God's word translation reads this way. If you live by what I say, you are truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. If you live by what I say, then you're my disciples. So what this does, this kind of pushes aside the idea that a disciple of Jesus is a person who comes to church on Sunday morning. Actually, if you want to know the truth, I don't know who these people are, but they, they categorize committed Christians. And right now in the United States, a committed Christian is anyone who shows up at church once a month. But that's not a disciple. <laughs> it may be a committed Christian, but it's not a disciple. The phrase, the truth will make you free, is often said to mean, come to Jesus and you'll be made free. Now there's truth in this statement, but that's not what Jesus is saying. I mean, obviously, when I came to Christ, there was a liberty that came. No question about it. But you know, just a, a quick minute... You know, for three months, I wasn't convicted of smoking. But I was radically saved. I was radical about Jesus. And I was witnessing about Jesus. I walked into my boss one day, smoked a cigarette, and said, I said, can I talk to you? He said, fine, have a seat. So I'm sitting on this couch, I'm smoking a cigarette. Let me, I said, let me tell you how Jesus saved me. Let me tell you what Jesus means to me. And so he listened to my whole testimony. He said, you know, that's really amazing. And then he said this, and God used that man who eventually did become a Christian. He said, if you want to show me the strength of your God, mm -hmm. show me how you're going to stop smoking. Because he was not a smoker, you know. Now, I know smoking is not the worst thing in the world, but what I'm saying is, is that I, I was radically saved, and yet there was stuff, all sorts of stuff that had to be dealt with. And being, becoming a disciple and following Jesus. And listen, discipleship is not just about me following Jesus independent of everybody else. A couple of weeks ago, Minda shared, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, there is a body. As a matter of fact, the very first thing the Holy Spirit does when we're born again is he baptizes us into a body of people. Good. The word baptize means to place into or immerse. Very good. So... I didn't even know Craig, but he, I mean, Kurt, when he wasn't, <laughs> Craig, Kurt, too many, okay. too many K's. But if, if he had been born when I got saved, you might have been, 1971, 
Yeah. Okay. When? <laughs> if he was saved, then I was connected supernaturally to him, even though I did not know him. But the most important thing is God connects us to a local church. Amen. Some people say, well, I'm a, I'm a member of the body of Christ universal. Let me have that address. In other words, God wants us connected to a people. Why? Because I can't make it alone. I need Kurt. We all need each other. And so becoming a disciple is not just about following Jesus, but it's also becoming a part and learning to submit one to another, hearing one another, <coughs> helping one another, and being submitted to leadership. Not bondage style, but submitted in the fear of the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. So there is truth to the statement that when I met Jesus, I came to freedom, but I didn't come to full freedom. But here Jesus is saying that when we live by what he says, we truly become his disciples. And when we come to know the truth, excuse me, and when and we come to know the truth, and that truth makes us free. In other words, the freedom we're looking for comes from knowing truth that Jesus gives us. <clears throat> so next slide, Jesus is saying the freedom we're looking for comes through following him. Being his disciple. That's what you're looking for. That's what the world's looking for. They don't know it. I didn't know it for a long time. This gives great clarity to the Great Commission. In an indiv- if, if an individual comes to freedom by becoming Jesus' disciple, then the same is true for all the nations. The answer for all the nations, we can look at this slide. The answer for all the nations, that is what will bring them to truth and freedom, is to follow or become disciples of Jesus Christ. It's not a new political party. It's not a new president. It's not, let's, let's show them the American way. It's show them Jesus. And as a matter of fact, when you, when you read the Great Commission in the Greek, where it says, teach them to observe all things, the Greek literally says, show them how to do everything that I've taught you. For example, the idea is this, that if if I'm going to teach my children, when it came time to teach Minda and Michael how to tie their shoes and brush their teeth, we did not get behind a podium and start giving them lessons. What did we do? We got down with them. We showed them how. And we, we could not say we've taught our children how to tie shoes until they had tied shoes. We could not say we've taught our children how to brush teeth until they could brush their teeth. That's what discipleship is about. We show people how, not by instruction only, but by lifestyle. This is the way to do it. This is the way to overcome the lust of the flesh. This is the way to overcome whatever it is that people need to overcome. And you do it carefully, you do it patiently, and you don't do it judgmentally. When we are following Jesus, we have the truth and freedom every nation is looking for. In other words, a believer 
who has come to maturity, not no one is fully, fully grown, but when a believer comes to maturity and is living a kingdom life, that's what the nations are looking for. Now, this all begins with hearing what he says, then doing it. That's how it begins. You hear what he says and then do it. If what Jesus says can't be done or isn't supposed to be done, then there's nothing practicable about knowing Christ. We're only Christians in theory. But uh, that's absurd. But in so many places in the scripture, Jesus says so much to the contrary. I, I want to I emphasize three places in scripture that Jesus gave the parable of the sower. And, and I want you to see what he said and the practical fruit that comes into our life when we really do what he says. These are found in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. I, I chose Mark because I, I just like it better. Mark chapter 4, verses 14 through 20. Uh, verse 14 says, The sower sows the word. Jesus had told the, the multitudes the parable because he spoke to the multitude in parables. And then when he was alone with the disciples, they wanted to know what he was talking about. And so I'm reading the explanation of the parables to the disciples. So the sower sows the word. Jesus is the sower. Or in our life, we sow into the lives of people. The sower sows the word. And first there's hard soil or hard ground. Mark 4, 15. These are the ones by the wayside. By the wayside. Where the word is sown. When they hear... Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. This is a hard heart. The wayside is literally a path. It's a beaten down path. And seed can fall on it, but it's not going to go in because it's hard. And all of these types of soil are talking about hearts. And, and we can do some inspection of ourselves, introspection of what kind of hearts we have, or we can have different types of hearts in different circumstances and situations. And then rocky soil in verses 16 and 17, these likewise are the ones sown on stony ground or rocky ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. Hallelujah! Man, did you hear that word today? Wow! Awesome! I heard such a word and I committed my life to Jesus. They immediately receive it with gladness and they have no root in themselves. And so they endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution, tribulation means pressure of circumstances. Persecution means that which drives away. When tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they stumble or are offended or caused to fall into sin. There's a principle we need to understand that when God really speaks a word that we embrace and we begin in, there is, there is an adversary that we need to understand. He will do everything he can to keep us from walking that out. We've seen it happen. I, it's happened with us. Actually, I testified the other night. I have had a problem with my leg, and God really has healed it. And I testified to the community group the other night. 
And I mean, I learned this principle years ago that, that so many times when you begin to testify of the goodness of God, the adversary comes. That very night, I started having problems with it sleeping. The next night, it was horrible. And, and I just said, no way. I am not giving into this. I am not giving into this. And so last night was a good night. <laughs> and so what I'm saying is, is that, you know, when, when Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, came to Jesus... And he said, if you'll come and lay, my, lay your hands on my daughter, she will be healed and she will live. She's at the point of death. And Jesus went with him. And on the way to Jairus' house, somebody from his house came and said, don't trouble the master anymore. Your daughter is dead. Well, he prayed specifically. Lay your hands on my daughter. She will be healed and she will live. And yet the next thing he hears after stepping out in faith and praying, what does he hear? Your daughter's dead. And Jesus turns to him in that moment and says, don't be afraid, only believe. And I believe we have to understand some Jesus is with us all the time. And many times in our circumstances, when they seem to go contrary to what it is that we are walking towards and we, what we know God has given us, that the Lord is right there with us and he will encourage us. So Jesus gets to Jairus' house and he raises her up. So a lot of times, the moment we pray, the opposite begins to happen. And if we don't understand spiritual warfare, we will not be able to go through. And then the thorny soil in Mark 4, 18 and 19. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, that can be an anxious care, that can be just caught up in the everyday responsibilities. Those are not evil things alone. But when we put the cares of the world before the things of God, that's where the trouble is. The desires for other things, the lusts of other things, some translations say, the desires for other things. Entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. They choke the word. The, you had the word, but those things enter in. Desire for other things. You know, God's not into making people poor. And he's not opposed to people being rich. But when that becomes a goal, and we're just hell-bent on getting rich then we have committed idolatry. And so those are things that can get in the way. What happens? It chokes the word and it makes the word unfruitful in our lives. And then the good soil, Mark 4, 20. These are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear, now notice every one of these, I made the word here in yellow because all four of these heard the word. Yeah. Hearing the word is essential. All four of these types of souls heard the word. Those who hear the word, they accept or receive it, and they bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. So there's four soils or kinds of heart. Here they are, the hard, the rocky, the thorny, and the good. Those are soils or ground or types of heart. We're dealing with hearts here. And I believe it, it, all of us can have 
those at different points in our life. We can have, we can have great soil when it comes to one thing and not good soil when it comes to another thing. You know, we treat the Word of God like smorgasbord. Yeah. I'll forget the asparagus and the, and the broccoli. Give me meat and potatoes. And, and, and what happens is we have a hard heart when it comes to broccoli and asparagus. And God has some broccoli and asparagus. He even, he even has some turnips and beets. And we don't want that. You know, we, we want to just keep on going. This thing about discipleship, well, I don't know about this. Well, Jesus was so clear about that. Let's make sure we have a good heart when it comes to everything that God says. Let's not only hear what God says, but let's receive it. Now, every one of these heard the word. Every one of them heard the word. A sobering truth. Three out of four kinds of hearts into which the word is sown do not bear fruit. The hard heart, the rocky heart, the thorny heart, they don't bear fruit. The good heart bears fruit. Let me give you four essentials for fruit bearing that lasts. To bear fruit that lasts. Bearing fruit that lasts. You got to hear it. And you know, I'm, I'm not going to be a literalist, but sometimes I am. I love to hear the word on tape more than I love to read it. And I love to read it a lot. But even when I'm home, I will sit and I will listen and I look. And it's amazing the revelation I get just from listening. I've got the word on tape in my car and I drive a lot and I listen to it. And it's amazing the things that come. So we have to hear the word. Then the second thing, I put these together. In other words, if you'll take all three of those parables of the sower, then these are the things that are, some say some of them, some say all of them. But these are the requirements to bear fruit. First, you have to hear it, and then after you hear it, you must receive or accept it. And it's only after you receive or accept it that you get understanding of it. And here's where we miss it. We want to understand it before we receive or accept it. But what God desires is that we receive and accept it simply because He says it, even when we don't understand it. I mean, there's a lot that I accept about God I don't understand. There's a lot that happens I don't understand. People ask me, well, this person died. What do you think? I said, well, I'm, I thank God he's in heaven, but I don't know. I don't know a lot. But I do know this, that when God speaks, when I know it's God, I have to receive that. I have to accept it. And then he gives me understanding. And then after that, I keep or guard it. It's the same work. It's the Greek, Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word that God gave Adam when they fell. No, excuse me. When he put Adam in the garden, he said, keep it. It means guard it. Well, Adam did not guard the garden. He did not keep it. He allowed the adversary in. And so if we'll hear what God says, if we'll accept and receive it on the basis that he said it, he will give us understanding. And then we guard it. Let me just throw in something else here. In light of where we are in what God is giving us. 
as far as disciples, becoming disciples, making disciples, and making disciples who make disciples. Greater understanding will come as you begin to do it. That's always the case. A lesson is never enough. As we hear what it is that God says to do, and we begin to take steps, then what happens? Then we begin to gain insight. We begin to gain insight. You get revelation as you take action. Now, I want to close by positing something in your heart. I really believe this. You know, in the, in the ninth chapter of Matthew that Paul has alluded to several times in this uh, about Jesus going about in the villages and the cities teaching, preaching, and healing, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion toward them because they were weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Well, this is very applicable about what I'm about, what, what I'm about to show you is very applicable in that context because he tells his disciples... Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And then uh, a, few, a few verses later, Jesus it says these 12 he sent out. So the ones he got to praying about the harvest are the ones he sent into the harvest. Do you realize that in the context of your sphere of influence, in the context of your work or whatever, if you will seriously in faith pray for those individuals then what God will do is God will get them in your heart. And then God will send you into their lives. And sometimes he sends somebody else into their lives. That's fine. But the fact is, without praying for those people, you don't have them in your heart and you're just going through the motions. And sometimes praying for the people that irritate you the most, especially on the job. I worked for a man that drove me nuts. I mean, I was absolutely beside myself. He drove me nuts. And so I, I made the mistake. I sinned, and I started talking to him about other people that were working there. And the Lord rebuked me one day, and he said, if you would pray half as much as you for that individual as you talk about him, you'd be amazed. And so I started praying for him. I started praying for him. Seriously, I repented, and I started praying for him. And you know what? He never changed, but I did. So many times we, we want to fix people. You're not called to fix people. I'm not called to fix people. I'm, I'm called to share with people and to love people and to give an example and let God fix them as they walk. So just in, in the context of Matthew 9, I think what I'm sharing with you is very applicable. In John where Jesus said, don't say several months and the harvest said, said behold, the fields are already white. I don't think what I'm sharing has application there, but I really believe it has application in nine. Jesus spoke often of making disciples and of the harvest, and he spent three years making disciples. But I want you to consider these things as we look at these slides. We have tended to think of the harvest as uh, in terms of unbelievers repenting and coming to faith in Christ. But is it possible that unbelievers repenting and coming to faith in Christ is just new life sprouting and not the harvest. New life sprouting is wonderful, but it's not very useful without growth. A young corn plant shooting up through the dirt is hope for a harvest, but that corn shoot 
doesn't provide what God designed for it until it grows to a complete, full, useful stalk. I mean, you know, this is the planting season, I guess. It's past. In, in the south, they've already got crops. <laughs> but I'm just saying this is the planting season. And so you, you don't see a, a shoot come up and cut it down. I mean, that's not a harvest. Is it possible that the harvest is disciples made, bringing us to full use for God's glory? I believe this is the harvest. Just as the farmer disciples the young new sprouts, caring for them, feeding, tending, and protecting them until they are mature and sustainable, so it is with us. We serve people and win them to Christ, then we disciple them, caring for them, feeding, tending, and protecting them until they're mature and sustainable, useful for the master's work, the harvest. I mean, the harvest takes time. You know, some of those people in your sphere of influence, they're going to reject what you say. But you don't reject them. You keep praying for them. I've rejected Jesus many, many times. Many, many times, people kept praying for me. Jesus' plan is that all his followers have his heart and be workers in his harvest. I'm sure you've heard of Isaiah 61. Once again. Jesus' plan for all believers, heal our hearts, liberate us, appoint us to our God-given place, and make us all we build. And that's where we are. And that's not going to change. We won't always preach on making disciples. But if we do the will of God, we will always be making disciples. And our desire is to make disciples that make disciples. People that are raised up, they're broken when we meet them. Like all of us, every person here was broken. They come to wholeness and they start becoming rebuilders. And today we're going to.